0: What are the four pillars of mental health? Hello, my friend, welcome to Something For Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashpitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Dr. Jay Wiles joins the podcast this week, and Dr. Jay is a clinical health psychologist, and he is the co-founder and chief scientific officer at Hanu Health. And in this conversation, we break down the four pillars of mental health, which are routine exercise, good nutrition, stress resiliency, and quality sleep. In other news, this episode was brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So, click the link in the show notes, check out all their products, and see which ones work best for your specific needs. Then, at checkout, use the code EVERYBODY for $10 off your entire order. Now, on to episode 174 with Dr. Jay Wiles. Hello my friend and welcome to something for everybody. My name is Aaron Mashbitz. Dr. J, welcome to the show. Hey,
1: thanks for having me on.
0: Before we get into the uh, the meat and bones of all the good stuff that we're gonna talk about today, I have a very important question to ask you. And it is, how are you doing? Like like actually how are you doing?
1: Yeah, it's always a it's always an interesting question. I saw a podcast one time where jordan peterson was asked that question and he thought about it and just started like bawling crying um and that's not a spoiler saying <laughs> that's about to happen here but how am I actually doing a, a bit overwhelmed? I mean, I, I, I'm the co-founder and chief scientific, scientific officer of a digital mental health company. Uh, and it's a startup. So it's always um, a matter of fighting every single day. Uh, we're in the business of helping people with regulating their stress response, but I'd be lying if I told you that I wasn't feeling some stress the past few weeks. It, it, I surely have.
0: How, how do you handle the overwhelm? Cause that's For me, that's like a that's a pretty reoccurring emotion as well. Um, You know, also running sort of my own businesses and trying to get a podcast off the ground, and just like life can be overwhelming um, sometimes. How do you how do you handle it?
1: There's a lot of things that I do to handle my emotional health, but I think the number one thing is by not avoiding it. hmm. So many people. I think they avoid the discomfort of stress, anxiety, emotional dysregulation. And when you avoid it, it's almost like you try to protect yourself by telling yourself that it's just going to go away. Like it'll it, 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 it'll just find its way kind of out the window if I just tuck it away. And that's just not the case. These things compound. And as these things compound, people either led down one of two paths. We either explode or we implode. And for me, it is a matter of learning to accept the experience of stress, leveraging stress for my advantage, as opposed to viewing it as a pitfall or a downfall or some sort of barrier. So for me, I'm always thinking about how can I just be mindful of this moment and this experience Not accepting in terms of like, I will always be this way, like things will never get better, but acceptance of the actual emotion that I'm experiencing, whether it's stress or anxiety or sadness or frustration. So I think it's learning to be in the moment, but it's also like just taking care of myself in the best way I possibly can, like making sure that my exercise is on point, my nutrition's on point. Uh, I'm doing what I can to practice good stress mitigation skills, uh, that my relationships are intact and not toxic, uh, making sure that I'm sleeping well and I'm getting good rest. It's a combination of all of those things, which I know is a bit uh, widespread, but All of it matters. And it, if we want to live a life of more contentment and joy, I think it makes sense to put in the hard work in those areas.
0: I uh, agree a hundred percent. And that's, that was one of the big things that I wanted to talk to you about. I was uh, looking at your Instagram, which everyone should go and follow. Uh, It's linked in the show notes. And you had a post about the four, your four pillars of mental health Mm -hmm. and Like um, that struck a chord with me because when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm like just eat well, move well, sleep well, and think well. And basically your four pillars encompass all of those things obviously because those are the tenets of how you live a good life. Um, And before we get to those, it's like I think one of the problems today is that we want this like sort of quick hack fix thing. And a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff you see on social media is like if you do this thing for three days – you're going to be fixed or cured or I don't know those words are kind of weird and they don't mm. like make mm-hmm. sense but mental health is a lifelong journey as you know obviously and so um i love the fact that that's something that you're talking about as someone who is an expert in this area and so i would love to with you right now just sort of break down those four pillars um you know one by one and what you have to offer tips how people can get started if they're not doing that thing um so the first one being uh, routine exercise mm-hmm.
1: one of the things I think that drew me to this, and uh, so i've always been an athlete, but what yeah. I noticed is that i'm a psychologist by training, but during my training in psychology, most of the focus was on diagnostics and assessment and then therapeutics, but therapeutics was more like we can call it conventional psychotherapy. Um, So people may be familiar with things like cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical behavioral therapy or act. There's a lot of different modalities for that. What we didn't address as much was the role that movement and exercise plays in mental health. Uh, And I find that fascinating because if you were to go on to PubMed or to go on to really any research database and begin to look at modifiable behaviors that can significantly move the needle in terms of mental well-being at the very top of the list, above psychotherapy, above nutrition, above just about everything. There's only one other competing thing that I'll talk about here in a second that's pretty on par with this one, um, is, is exercise. Exercise constantly comes up. Uh, well, why is that? Well, we know that movement of the body is training in the brain. So as we move the body, and that could be strength training, that could be cardiovascular training, as we engage in mobilizing energy, we know that this stimulates our central nervous system, so our brain and our spinal cord to help to build more neuronal connections to help with what's called neurogenesis, which is the neuronal connections. And then also it creates and stimulates something called BDNF brain derived neurotropic factor, which is like miracle grow for the brain. All of these things can be so helpful also in balancing some of the neurotransmitters that are associated with emotional and mental dysregulation. And I don't think that neurotransmitters are just the core of mental illness um, and mental wellness. However, we do know that that they are a variable. So we know that we can enhance their functionality with movement and with exercise. So as a part of the routine that I provide as a clinician um, that we kind of teach with my company at Hanu is that exercise has to be a foundational pillar to what you're doing, because the evidence is just so robust as to how exercise plays a vital role in overall mental well-being.
0: Yeah. Like, why do you why do you think it's taken so long for that to be like, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe I feel like it's taken a long time for the movement, the exercise in the body to become interconnected uh, with the mind piece. I think for a long time, maybe people only thought psychological distress happened in the brain and you fix the mind with the mind. Um, and I just, for me personally, that's just never been the case. Like every, every time I feel anxious or stressed, it's always been an exercise because I've been an athlete my whole life like you. So that's always been like sort of my mm-hmm. foundational piece. Right. Um, and now uh, it's like for me, it, it just feels like there's no other option. You just have to move. You have yeah. to like, yeah. like otherwise life is just not as good as it potentially might be. And and I think people also get caught up on like, oh, do I have to lift weights? No, you absolutely don't have to lift weights. You should because mm-hmm. that's a great marker for health span. Mm-hmm. But you can do Zumba or dance or rock climb or do jujitsu or all of these things. You just got to find something that you actually want to stick to and that you enjoy doing, even though it sometimes sucks.
1: Right. Any movement is better than no movement, for sure. Uh, I would you know, the, the to come back to your question. I think one of the primary reasons it took so long is because of what you mentioned before. People were in camps and scientists and academics are the ones. So the, so if people aren't familiar with the way, with how this works, is that academics drive the research that informs the therapy provided by the clinician. And because of that, clinicians are waiting to hear from the researchers as to what to do in order to move the needle. So in our discussion in mental health, we're talking about how do we move the needle from a mental health perspective? If we're waiting on these researchers we're typically looking for people who are doing research in that field so for exercise physiologists they're looking to exercise physiologists to for psychologists they're looking for psychological researchers and so a lot of the times uh, especially in the fields of psychological research and mental health research a lot of it had to do with different therapeutic modalities or different theoretical models. And we weren't really looking at health behavior change. When we knew that when someone was depressed or anxious, they were much less likely to exercise we knew that they were much less likely to make appropriate nutritional decisions we know that they were likely having sleep related issues so we kind of always looked back like prospectively or retrospectively uh, and what we needed to do is look forward and say okay well how can we actually use some of these tools preventatively and so mm-hmm. it wasn't It wasn't until I would say more or less like the last like 20 or so years that we really came into this idea that, okay, the mind and the body are not two completely disconnected entities here, right? Like it's, it's, these are actually much more interconnected. They're a bi-directional street. Once one communicates one way, the other can communicate the other way as well. So it's two-way communication. I think that for psychologists, there was this resistance to saying I and I put mental health into psychologists as well. I am just am a psychologist, so I kind of speak for the masses of psychologists, which I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to anyway. (laughs) Uh, What what I would say for us is we're like, okay, well, we're trained in this modality. That is the lens that we view this from um it is our life's work to uh, to engage in the activities that we've been trained in and so we kind of avoided looking into these other pathways and then i think we had this kind of clear knock at the door saying like well what is the actual thing that we're trying to do as mental health professionals oh yeah help people improve mental well-being if that is the case and that is the platform that we're running on then shouldn't we not leave any stone unturned here like we should explore mm. everything and i think the openness to holistic and integrative medicine and integrative health has been the key driver and catalyst to having us look at these other approaches like nutrition and exercise and sleep and how they are interconnected with mental well-being and how the mind and the body are not just these two completely separated entities
0: yeah exactly speaking of that was was that a driver for you to create your own business
1: it was um, I kind of it's funny uh, I, I kind of came into this business uh, almost out of chance um, stars aligning it was it was kind of a weird weird story in the sense that you know, I was running my own practice um, had a really uh, really just I guess well performing consulting firm. And then I was approached by a technologist who I was consulting for, who worked in the Silicon Valley area. Who's like, I think we could do something better. Like, let's put together something in the digital mental health space uh, that's better than what's out there. And I had to take that leap of faith. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I think that some of the work that I'm doing right now uh, that's helping people on a small scale, you know, individually, um, maybe in small groups is working effectively. I think we can reach a lot more people if we create a digital mental health platform, a software platform. So yeah, I think it was a, a primary, a primary driver. Uh, and then it's also too just trying to open the eyes, uh, open people's eyes to how making even small behavioral changes in in mm-hmm. their lifestyle can really move the needle. We don't have to boil the ocean here. It's not like I need you doing marathon training and, you know, eating, you know, only ice cubes and, 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 and spinach and chard. Like we, <laughs> we, I think a lot of people are like, Oh, it's gotta be so restrictive. No, I, I, there's a lot of ways of doing this, uh, that can move the needle significantly, but doesn't require you just to kind of revamp, you know, everything that you're doing in your life.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that's sort of a consequence of our kind of extremist culture, you know, that surrounds mostly social media, right? If Again, if you're not, if you're not doing this, if you're not waking up at 5 a.m. and doing the cold shower and then by 6.30, you've already done 90 minutes of work and then you've sent 42 emails and you've touched base with 900 clients and then you have this passion and you turn it into a side hustle and the side hustle is mana. It's like, holy fucking, all yeah. right, man. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I can't just like yeah. wake up. Have a little breakfast, maybe have my coffee, pack my kids' lunch, drive them to school, have a nice day at work. And then inside of all of that, yeah, get some movement in. So eat right 80% of the time. uh, Sure. You know, find a place to be grateful for something. Maybe go outside with my kids so I can get in touch with like, yeah, there's ways to like live life to its fullest without having a sort of, you know, regimented idea. But I guess if you're so far off and you need to be drawn back in and your life really needs a, you need like you like really need help like you're really struggling then maybe yes you need to get pretty strict with your routine so you can get that down then i feel like over time then you can start to loosen that up because you've come become this person you become a transformed person that does the thing they say they're going to do they have some protocols in place and all that stuff so right uh yeah it's it you know there could be some some differing views there potentially
1: yeah 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 no I, I, i i i'm with you yeah
0: um okay so number 2 uh touched on it a little bit but good nutrition like huge how does how does our nutrition uh affect everything that we do Yeah
1: yeah you know the one thing that every human has to do is we have to eat and we have to drink like that that's that is a given if you are a human being And so if we think of what food actually is uh food is a messenger it's a communicator And we use food to communicate with our body, to communicate with our cells um, at a very small scale, but also very large scale all in one. What we put into our body uh, doesn't just drive us from a metabolic standpoint to keep our body going or an energetic standpoint. That is true that it does that. But also it drives neuronal functioning or drives brain functioning. We know that as people experience difficulties with emotional or mental health, it affects typically behaviors towards eating. And as our eating behaviors change, it can also affect uh, people's – sorry, I lost track of what I was saying there. And as people make changes in their – so as people make changes in their diet, it affects Their mental well-being and as people's Mm -hmm. mental well-being changes it affects their diet nutrition is extremely important because again it is going to be the messenger and when that messenger is providing a message to the cells to fire or not fire to uh under or over perform then these uh directly um, relate to overall mental outcomes and so i would say that nutrition is uh, especially from a metabolic standpoint, blood glucose management, mitochondrial functioning standpoint, uh, nutrition would be at uh, you know the core alongside exercise, sleep, and the other things that I mentioned as areas that are modifiable, modifiable behaviors that have been demonstrated well within the evidence of literature to actually move the needle on mental functioning. So uh, I think that uh, people they underestimate how food can affect overall mental functioning and well-being. And I would say that we know in so many different ways that if you were to underestimate that fact, like you're going to leave a lot of your cards on the, on the, on the table. So, yeah, nutrition at the core of mental well-being.
0: Do you have any um, like basic tenets that you tell people to try and focus on when they're thinking about um, altering the, what what foods they eat?
1: Yeah, so the the biggest thing would be overly processed foods and how they Mm -hmm. can affect cellular functioning. Um, so for the most part, uh, it would be, uh, foods that are overly, um, saturated with sugar, um, and how sugar can dysregulate blood glucose, blood glucose dysregulates cortisol output, epinephrine, norepinephrine output. So these are stress hormones and stress neurotransmitters. If those are constantly being dysregulated through the inclusion of overly processed foods, well, that can inhibit and affect mood pretty significantly. So we don't want a roller coaster of blood glucose throughout the day uh, because we know that that can significantly impact a lot of these mood hormones and mood related neurotransmitters. The other thing uh, that's really, really important is the role it plays in inflammation and how we know that inflammation, both the mind or brain and in the body as well, uh, uh, are significantly impacted by what we eat, whether that's overly processed foods, it's inflammatory oils, um, it's foods that just kind of aren't. Another one would be overconsumption of foods as well, can generally impact mood. So there's so many robust studies out there. That demonstrate kind of the impact that blood sugar regulation, um, and, or I should say fluctuation, as well as compacted with things like, um, uh, you know, eating a highly processed oils or, or refined seed oils, these things we know drive inflammation and inflammation in the mind and body affects, affects mood in general. So those are the kind of the core tenets that I tell people to watch out for, um, is like overconsumption of food in general, but that's a little bit too basic. I think kind of watching out for protein intake, um, is another one. Um, so we know that enhanced protein intake, um, also helps with muscle protein synthesis. So it helps you build bigger, faster, stronger muscles, But the other thing that it does really effectively is that it builds neurotransmitters. So proteins or amino acids are the building blocks of neurotransmitters within the brain. So without the intake of high-quality protein, we affect the uh, the manufacturing and production of these neurotransmitters in the brain as well.
0: What is um, your stance on alcohol? Because that's an interesting topic uh, nowadays as well.
1: Alcohol, uh, there is... No defined evidence that there is benefit for any level of consumption of alcohol. Uh, there, There is no evidence that we see right now in the literature that any consumption of alcohol is beneficial to health, especially for mental well-being. Does that mean that people need to stay away from it all the time? No. For some people like it can be really fun for them just to have a glass or two of wine on the weekends, you know, with their family or with their friends. I'm not advocating that everybody get rid of wine. What I am advocating for is for us to stop perpetuating the false narrative that alcohol is somehow a a, a health chemical because it's not. We just don't have the evidence for that. You know, for many people What may be effective coping by the use of alcohol initially turns into maladaptive coping. And I've seen many individuals as a clinician who start off by saying, you know, it really just helps me to de-stress with one or two drinks. Well, Well, fine. But then it becomes, and you know, they do it once a week. And then it becomes, you know, twice a week. And then it becomes every day of the week. And then it becomes, well, I need like four or five now. And then the next thing we know, we have a full-blown alcohol use disorder or addiction. That That's not an uncommon story to hear. So I think that while I don't want to ultimately demonize alcohol, I do want to say that it's a chemical that, and I would even go as far as to say a toxin that we need to be highly judicious and careful with. It's not saying we should never use it and that there's never fun, appropriate times to use it, but we have to know thyself, number one. And then number two, identify that this should not be the only, uh, quote-unquote, effective coping strategy that people use when dealing with stress or mental health-related issues.
0: Yes. Um, The most interesting quote I heard about alcohol is... Alcohol is the only drug on the planet that, if you don't use it, people assume you have a problem.
1: Yep, I I agree. Period. Yeah, it's Mm that. I think that sums it up right there, which is really interesting to me. Uh, And you know, it's really interesting to me too. Not to go off on too much of a tangent, but in some of today's day, yeah, some of today's day and culture, I've seen where we can glorify the use and, and overuse of alcohol. Um, you know, expecting you know certain comedians to like be that guy who drinks and gets plastered. And that's kind of like his branding and icon. And I'm not mentioning anybody in particular, but I see kind of this, this wave of like glorifying kind of the use. And, and I would say overuse of it. And uh, it's, it's interesting. I am not sure if I fully understand it, especially as a clinician, I get it for a quote unquote branding type thing. But I don't understand it as a clinician because I think we 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 start to go down a very slippery slope uh when we use that as a primary mechanism for whatever it may be branding or coping or whatever it is so yeah alcohol's a alcohol's a tricky one
0: yeah i was um I was listening to a podcast, and the podcaster was talking about how she the podcaster built the sort of career off being like this crazy sort of drunk. Um, But that was sort of a performance that that podcaster was putting on. And every time they went to like a party with real people or around fans, they were expected to be this person where they heard all these stories about how they drank all this stuff and performed in this way and did all these things that were interesting stories later on. And so it's like, you can get caught up in that, in that trap as well because you want to, you know, sort of, I guess, be loyal to your fan base and they expect right. something from you. And so you want to, you want to give to them how much potentially they've given you. And then it becomes a performance rather than who you really are. And then that becomes a, a deep trap, which I, I know very well. And yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's very tough because I, um I stopped drinking probably like four, over 400 days ago. Mm. And the first couple of times I like went out with some of my friends and told them I wasn't drinking anymore. The look you get, my friend, is like – and they know me. And they know me. They know I, one, didn't have a problem. I just decided to stop. And they still looked at me like, oh, did he secretly have one? Was he like putting vodka in his water bottle and then going to work? Is that the person he was? I don't know now. And it's so interesting. Like, It's like – and so I hope that we can shift away from that culture and shift into a culture where alcohol is just something that like – yeah, I I like to have a whiskey – with my buddy after work. And then we go home and we feel fresher and clearer to uh, do whatever we're going to do or, you know, uh, having a cheers at a wedding or, uh, you know, I'm Jewish. So having wine at some of our religious events is like a part of our culture. And yeah. so, yeah. but all in, in moderation and with an intention, right? I think things like that can, can be happened with intention, like getting on social media with an intention. It right. all helps these somewhat dangerous things just be a little bit more productive for right. our lives. But
1: yeah, yeah. no, and I, and I agree with you as well, you know, kind of coming back to the statement that I make that I don't want to demonize alcohol, uh, because I think that's taking it a little bit too far. But it's like finding that balance. It's like not, not demonizing alcohol, not glorifying it as well as being kind of like, oh, it's the, you know, the elixir that we we all need to be social or to be whatever, fill in the blank. It's just like knowing thyself as well. Right. And then just respecting the decisions of, of, of others. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's kind of key to this.
0: Yeah. And it, and falls into, to the third pillar, which is, uh, stress resiliency, which is, I think is what we need a lot of right now, how to figure out how to, how to deal with our stress. So what are, what are your core tenants there?
1: Yes. People, people, I think intuitively understand that they are stressed. Um, but readily admitting it to themselves or to anyone else can be very challenging because we are in a culture and society, especially here domestically in America, where you push it, like you just push, 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 like you'll sleep when you're dead. Like it is hardcore. Like you work, work, work. And you know, if you're feeling stressed, suck it up, like rub some dirt on it. Like you got to go. And it's interesting because we expect like within our society that that leads to better performance. But what we know is that that's not true. Actually, we can burn (laughs) ourselves out and we do burn ourselves out really, really quickly because what I tell people is that stress also gets a bad rep. Stress is inherently good. And I will preach that until I am proven. Otherwise stress at its core is inherently good. Well, why is that? Stress is nothing but an alert system. It's a protective mechanism. We have stress monitoring and stress engagement mechanisms in our body in order to self-preserve, in order to protect. Without the stress response, we would probably, number one, never get anything done. And number two, put ourselves into situations that will get us killed pretty easily. So evolutionarily, like we can't really continue to pass down these genes if we don't have effective stress responses. If I am out in the woods and I'm hiking and a mountain lion or let's say a bear jumps around the corner, I sure as hell better have my stress response turn on and kick into high gear. Because if my stress response does not in that time, my ass is grass. Like, I'm done. Like, I'm done. (laughs) So what I would say is that stress is doing its job and it's doing it effectively. What I want to have happen is once I'm out of that situation and I'm, you know, back up in in my car ready to drive home, I might be a little bit shaken. But my stress response should be turned down if not turned off at at that point in time. That's how stress works. We want it to go on and turn off. At will when we need it, not on when we don't need it. Where stress can impact us negatively and where stress is not good is when that knob gets turned on and it stays on. What we might refer to as chronic stress. Chronic stress, that is the stress that is bad for you. That is not good. When we are in an acute stress situation, like the example I gave just a minute ago, the mountain lion jumps around the corner. We need our heart rate to significantly increase. We need blood flow to pump all to the body. We need our cognition to focus solely on one task, which is survival. We need all of that to happen in that moment to self-preserve. But outside of that, we don't need that to be happening. We actually know that that can be very harmful to us physiologically. A short burst of it, and who cares? It's actually great. It helps us out long burst of it, not so good. That's going to wear us out. That's going to drain our adrenals. That's going to, uh, uh dysregulate our blood glucose significantly, dysregulate cortisol significantly. So what we're really concerned here is identifying the nature and the triggers of chronic stress as opposed to transient stress. But when we're in a constant state of stress due to work or relationships or financial struggles or whatever it may be, That's the type of stress that we need to learn to mitigate. And so what do we do? Well, if we boil it down to nervous system regulation, which is basically like, is my stress response being overly activated? Then we have to say, well, how can we train the nervous system to not overly be activated? How can we train ourselves to learn how to become more self-aware as to what and when we are stressed? And then also learn how to self-regulate, train the nervous system to become more resilient, to regulate with our own volition at will. And this is where I bring in a lot of things like heart rate variability training or biofeedback, where I do things like meditation or mindfulness training, non-sleep deep rest protocols. This is where psychotherapy can be really effective as well. It's just uh, making sure that we are armed with as many tools as we possibly can to self-regulate. I think that's what it comes down to is learning to self-regulate. And so these uh, these are things that if we aren't doing, like we must do. And I think that stress, as opposed to exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress tends to be one that just isn't as sexy for people to work on, right? So it's like, mm. oh, exercise, I can do this new routine or buy this new equipment. Nutrition, oh, it's like, oh, I can you know try this new fad diet or whatever it may be. And then it's like for sleep, it's like I can buy all the new you know biohacking sleep gear for stress it's kind of like oh man I actually got to put in the hard work like I've got to you know do this this and this it's it's a challenging one for a lot of people but I think that if they leave it unattended it is a pillar that if left unattended uh, will cause the whole house to fall down and so if you want to build foundational health then stress resiliency is got to be like one of the if not the core focus
0: how does um dysfunctional breathing relate to our increase in stress or how we deal with it at least?
1: We are constantly breathing and we are meant to do so naturally. As as human beings, that's how we're designed. However, as we experience the chronic stress that I mentioned before, it inherently changes the way that we breathe. Well, why does it do that? Well, when we're in a stressful situation, We don't want to breathe like someone who's relaxed. We don't want to breathe slow. We don't want to breathe deep. Um, And we don't want to breathe with good intention. So when we are stressed, that means that we shift our breathing from lower to higher up in the chest. We tend to breathe a lot more from the mouth. And then we also uh, tend to breathe in a very rapid manner. So again, if the stress response is always turned on, then the propensity to breathe that way is going to also be turned on. So we see a lot of people who are stressed breathing from the mouth, breathing rapidly, and breathing from the chest, what we might refer to as dysfunctional breathing. So what we can do is use breathing as a tool or as a mechanism to help regulate the nervous system by breathing more functionally. So changing the breathing from mouth to nose, from short or shallow in the chest to deep and low, and then slowing the breathing down. The way I like to think about this is if I am breathing really slowly, I'm intentionally changing my breathing. What this is telling my brain is that you are obviously in a very safe and secure place. Why? Well, because if you were being chased by the mountain lion, you wouldn't stop to change your breathing to low, slow, and deep and from your nose. It would make no sense for you to do that. Um, that would actually be very counterproductive and probably going to end up in your life. So if you're doing this, the nervous system is therefore interpreting it Well, you're in a safe position. I'm going to allow you to relax. I'm going to set a cascade of physiological changes guided by your breathing to help the mind and the body to calm down. And so that is where breathing can be extremely valuable as a messenger to the body to slow down It engages what we call the vagal break, which is our 10th cranial nerve or our vagus nerve. It helps to uh, decrease the firing of neurons within the mind and body to help slow down, enhance the relaxation response. So I always tell people that a main strategy it's to utilize this, uh, more functional breathing as or, or breath work, we may call it as a mechanism for training the nervous system um, more in the long term, but you also can do it more in the short term. So if we find ourselves in a really stressful situation or position, engaging in that type of breathing can be a great, great way to help reset the nervous system. So I'm a huge fan of, you know, biofeedback of, of, you know, functional breath work training or functional breathing training. I just think that they're uh, really great, fast, and efficient ways to affect change in the nervous system.
0: Yeah, I've seen that. I mean, that work in real time with some of the uh, athletes that I coach. Um, you know, they I, I coach baseball, so they make a throwing error. They walk a guy. They take a bad swing. Like one big actual deep breath where they where they feel themselves taking a deep breath, you know, in through the nose, in the belly, like you said. Like you can just see them Okay. It's, it's okay. It's just one play and they feel okay. And then the one error doesn't compound into seven errors. It's just the one error. And then you move on and then the next play they're back in the zone. And so, um, that, uh, that's the only thing I can relate the the sort of mountain lion attack to in sort of present day life, at least for me working with athletes. But how do you, how do you relate nerves, anxiety, and stress? Are they they're a bit different or how do they relate or what's your take there?
1: yeah a lot of a lot of the words are used fairly interchangeably for a lot of people. You know, I don't care what verbiage people use to describe it. I can always relate it back to nervous system functioning um because we know that whether it's clinically relevant anxiety because if we well, a lot of times we think about stress, as being kind of like the precursor to anxiety. So it's like the stress Mm -hmm. is an experience and it compounds. And as that compounds, then it can end up being in anxiety, which could be generalized to a lot of things. It might be more of a constant state of worry, kind of constant state being on edge, um, so they're all very much inter- inter- interrelated and correlated with one another. It might just be kind of the severity of the duration um, that, that, that we chat about. But I can always bring it back and relate it to nervous system functioning. Um, anxiety is just kind of more like an enhanced version of nervous system dysregulation. Um, maybe it's like a, a, the dial has been turned up a little bit higher. We're notching closer to 10. Whereas stress might just be, again, a little bit more on, off, on, off, um, and anxiety being a Little bit more. It's just on, on, on. So uh, I, I just always bring it back to then. But you know, again, people use different verbiage to describe kind of their experience. Um, and you know, the the word anxiety is, tends to be a little bit more clinical, and so a lot of people will stay away from using that word for them because they think, oh, that's that's more of kind of like someone who's experiencing like you know something more significant, even though they may be really experiencing anxiety themselves. Uh, so I, I I just always relate it back to well we all have times of nervous system regulation and we all have times of nervous system dysregulation. Just some people have a little bit more of a challenge than others do.
0: One of the uh, uh, things that I I read, I read in a book, I'm not sure where, but I I like to remind myself and people of it is that if your aim is to never feel stressed, then you have the goal of a dead person. So, right.
1: Okay. (laughs) That's yeah, it's right. If you're human you're going to experience stress. And I think that if the goal is for you to eliminate stress, you are going to be wildly disappointed that you're never going to accomplish that goal. Um, because yeah, you're going to have to either be dead or, you know, I think we're moving in the way of like pure AI for everything. So maybe you're just robotic now. You're nothing (laughs) but a microchip. So maybe you don't have any stress anymore.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No soul, no stress. Jeez. Right. Right. Um, But, uh, Last one, um, huge, uh, quality sleep. I mean, a lot of it's, there's so much more about this now than I can even remember, uh, but I think that's awesome. Um, so yeah, quality sleep.
1: You can do everything for nutrition. You can do everything for exercise. Uh, you can even have really good stress <laughs> mitigation skills in the moment, stress resiliency skills. But if sleep is dysregulated, you're going to be leaving a lot on the table and suffering way more than what you should. This is another one that I think we're finally coming to terms in our society that makes a lot of sense to get really good quality sleep. Uh and this was kind of driven by like some of the top entrepreneurs. It used to be like the top entrepreneurs were like I you know, I go to bed at like 12 I wake up at three. I'm getting like three hours of sleep every night. I'm just crushing it, crushing it, crushing it. And then what starts happening? Well, these people start dying of heart attacks. Like they have strokes. Like things are not going well. And it was finally, uh, you know, kind of this wave of entrepreneurs who were like, "Uh, maybe we're burning ourselves out a little bit too much by getting three hours a night of sleep. It's probably not good for our health, our relationships. Oh, yeah. And our company and shareholders. So it was like in the world of entrepreneurs, they started saying, "Okay, well, what is, like what is the minimal dose effect here? Like, what do I need to get?" And you know, the it was recently, you know, the studies and research that came out from like people like Matthew Walker, the book Why We Sleep, uh, and research out of you know Stanford and Harvard that have indicated that like the core foundation of mental and uh, physical health is high quality sleep, and if it is disregarded then we see so, so much manifestation of mental and physical uh, uh, health related issues. Um, and the, and the data are so clear that it is one that is at this point in time, you can say is indisputable, the connection between sleep and physical and mental health problems. So I tell people, you know, the, what we see in the literature is that getting a minimum of seven hours of sleep, is like the, the lower threshold um, and then not sleeping over ten hours. So we know that under seven hmm. hours can actually uh, 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 you can see signs of physical and mental um, impairment, and then over ten hours actually is associated with poorer mental and physical health outcomes. We know that there's uh, many individuals who have major depressive disorder who will sleep like all day long and they'll sleep way longer than ten hours. And again, we know that's not associated with really positive health outcomes, both mental and physical health outcomes. Uh, Sleep is the ultimate recovery catalyst. I mean, it is the thing that is going to help the nervous system to recover and repair and consolidate and get ready for the next day. Without high quality sleep, we know that we are setting ourselves up from a metabolic standpoint, from a mental health standpoint for a not so great day. And as that compounds over time, as sleep gets worse and worse and worse and turns into something clinical like insomnia, uh, we know that this starts turning into like impairing functioning, um, impairing cognitive functioning, impairing uh, physical functioning. Uh, there are, are so many uh, deleterious effects of poor sleep. So with the advent of a lot of the health technology out there for sleep tracking, um, I'm a huge advocate of monitoring sleep, whether it's, you know, through, uh, I've got an aura ring on or I mean, I've got a, I've got an aura, I've got a whoop, I've got my Apple watch on as well. I'm uh, and then my Hanu. So I track everything um, because I'm a data got nerd. ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. And, and the good it thing is. about it is that you can look to see, like, am I waking up really often throughout night? Like, am I getting enough deep sleep, enough REM sleep, which are really important for mental and physical health? Am I sleeping long enough? Like, that's the key. And it will help kind of provide and drive that insight. And I think it's a good motivator and accountability partner, um, because the one thing is, like, you can wake up in the morning and you can kind of bullshit yourself into saying, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got enough sleep. I'm good to go. But yeah. if you're not quantifying it, um, then maybe you just, are, you're, you're kind of just spewing, you know, all of this bullshit to yourself. So I like the idea of being able to check in subjectively with your energy level in the morning. Do I feel recovered? Do I feel rested? But also looking at that data and saying, yeah, okay, well I, I got my whatever minimum of seven hours. Like I got like a really good high portion of deep and REM sleep. Now um, the nervous system is really well repaired and recovered to go in. And if not, like there's a lot of strategies that we, we can use to help better our our sleep overall. But I think it's like kind of um if I was going to put anything at like the bottom of the pyramid, like the foundational portion of the pyramid of health and wellness, I think sleep is where I
0: would put on the bottom there. Yeah, I mean it it has to be it, right? Because if you don't have any energy, then you can't do anything. If I have yep. no energy, then I definitely don't have clarity of mind to pick the nutritious food. I'm going to pick what's easy and most convenient, which is normally the thing that's not so good, unless I've pre-planned ahead of time, which I haven't because I haven't slept very well and I have no energy. If right. I have no energy, I'm not going to go to the gym because I have no energy. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> if stress happens and things happen in my life and I uh, someone cuts me off at work, my boss yells at me, uh, I'm late, uh, I'm not going to be able to handle those things well because, again, I have no energy. Hmm. And so um, it's taken a long time. You know, for this to happen, because when I was a young athlete, it was always like, hey, grind, 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 No one told me about sleep. My parents said I need to go to bed and that made sense so I could sleep and wake up refreshed. But there was no like there was no culture around it. And now I listen to Dr. Michael Gervais a lot and he and he's a big proponent of this. You know, he's like, yes, we can work hard, but that's sort of a prerequisite. The most important thing we want to do is recover hard. You have to recover hard. Yeah, because then each and every day you can get to the edge of your capacity, you get to the edge of your capacity, you recover just as hard. And now you have this sort of thing where you can show up every day like that. And that made the most sense to me. And also, this idea of energy management versus time management, oh, I want to manage my energy, then more over my time, because then I can maximize my time with that if I'm if I'm bringing my best energy to each and every day. And so those things made more sense to me. And that's why I got the aura ring and started tracking my sleep and things like that. But
1: Yeah. 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 It's gotta be, it's gotta be a foundational thing that people work on. You're going to leave so much on the table if you do not recognize that it is, you know, the core skill for, for mental and physical health.
0: Funny story about my, when I initially got my aura ring, um, when I got it, and I like, I'm a pretty competitive guy, and so I got it, and I was like, okay, I got to get a really good score. I got to get a really good score. And for like the first week, I didn't sleep at all. <laughs> every time I went to bed, I was like, all right, here's where I'm gonna get an 85. I'm gonna get a 90. Two hours yeah. later, I'm like wide awake. It's like one o'clock in the morning. My alarm goes <laughs> off. I'm like, shit. Right.
1: <laughs> so, uh, it's a bummer. Um, you tried to gamify it, but it just like <laughs> it, it was it, it was counter to what you were looking for.
0: Yeah. So then I'd like it was like just the ring is there. Just do what you normally do. And that's then it. it started, I figured it out a little bit and I've had it for a couple of years and it's cool. But, uh, nice. yeah. So yeah, those are the four pillars of, of basically not just mental health, but like living your best life, um, yep. in the most healthy way possible and trying to be proactive with that. I think that's a huge thing when it comes to this stuff. Like, I think our society is a little bit, let's only figure it out when we're in the crisis. Um, that's it. and so I that's think it.
1: All right. It's, 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 it's the way we see, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with a physician about this. This is kind of the way that conventional medicine is set up, right? Like you go run on blood panel and it's only if it gets flagged that we need to work some work out something. So it's only if there's potential pathology or an actual diagnosis that's, okay, now let's intervene. But if, you know, your your blood markers are right there next to it and it looks like, you know, if you continue down the same path, it's going to be into the pathology place. But no, your subthreshold, then you're okay. We don't even have, need to have the talk. Oh, your blood pressure is, you know, 129 over 79. Well, you're, you know, one milligram you know away from being there uh into hypertensive but you're not there yet so we'll have that conversation once you reach pathology that's kind of how modern day medicine is and it's really sad because it's like what can we do as a prophylactic like what can we do to step in and intervene earlier so that we don't get to that point like why do we need to diagnose and start treating somebody For high blood glucose um you know when their hbo1c is you know six five seven oh why can't we start doing it like when they're like five eight five nine it's it's just a weird thing that i that i think we're changing a little bit with precision medicine but we haven't really gotten there just yet
0: yeah is that what um your business is trying to do and the services you uh offer right trying to be proactive
1: yeah proactive in the mental health space so for us what we're trying to do is say We want to be an early detection, an early radar for you. So when we see signs that your nervous system is starting to unravel, starting to dysregulate, there's signs that the stress response is about to explode, the A-bomb's about to go off. We want to intervene early so that you can become aware that that's going on, but also learn how to self-regulate in the moment. And it's precision mental health care in the sense that we're looking at metrics as it relates to you. We understand Uh, and we, and we filter everything through a lens of you because we have enough data to understand with our algorithms where you typically are. And when we see you shift dynamically away from there, that's what we're going to alert you and let you know, Hey, something's going on. Let's go ahead and take the opportunity to regulate the nervous system before things spiral down. Because we don't, we want to do what we can to prevent a panic attack, not intervene Mm -hmm. when the panic attack is happening. Because when the panic attack is happening, it's a lot more difficult to intervene. But if we can catch the early signs of it before it turns into a panic attack, Well, that's going to be really, really good for many, many reasons, uh, but for especially that individual who's dealing with a panic attack, because they, if they can intervene early, then they know that they're going to be able to prevent going to the hospital, you know, spending a bunch of money. Like there's an embarrassment associated with a lot of people who have panic attacks, especially like if they find themselves in the ER and they're like, ah, sorry, it's just a mental health thing. Like that's embarrassing for a lot of people to experience. So we want to intervene as early as we can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And encouraging people to know that the investment they make early in their mental health will, will always be beneficial. Always. Yes. Yep. You know, sure. No matter what. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, for a long time, you know, anytime people heard mental health, it, they always just went directly to, Oh, that person's crazy. That person's mm-hmm. super depressed. Um, and that's just not what, the what mental health is. Mental health yep. for me, I think about it like how you think, feel and act. And so Every single person who's living on this planet has mental health. Now, as you know, obviously, being the doctor, there's mental health conditions, which are totally different. You know, your schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, stuff like that. Totally different sphere needs totally different treatment and help. But just for everyone who's living life, there's so many proactive mental skills that you can learn right now, even as a young person, like six, seven, eighth grade, and start learning and implementing so that when the inevitable hard thing happens in your life because we all get knocked down and punched in the face you're like oh okay this is where i apply my protocols and i become this person who can do these things on a day-to-day basis and i know how to handle this stuff and okay this is a stressful situation i'm about to present in front of my class okay i can take a couple deep breaths i have a mantra here we go let's rock it you know all that stuff it's like instead of just like throwing people out into the world and being like figure it out Right. What? I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the, I think a lot of people think too
1: that they almost have this idea that you go from like not anxious to anxious or like not depressed to depressed. It's typically not that simple. A lot of these things are very progressive. It starts off kind of small and then it blooms and builds and builds and builds and builds. And And we have, we actually even see this with severe and persistent mental illness. So things like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or psychoaffective disorder, or sorry, schizoaffective disorder. What we see is that these individuals will start having kind of like small manifestations of symptoms and it can be due to a lot of different things kind of in their internal external environment with that kind of build. And builds and builds and builds and builds until you know there's either a a, a kind of like a seminal event or uh, you know whatever it may be, uh, and, and so I like to tell people it's like if we can intervene early before it gets to the point of hospitalization or you know even something worse than that, then that's the key. Like that's the key is early intervention, early detection, or um, early prevention, and so we all know that our nervous system over time, um, if it's not, if we don't teach it how to regulate itself, it becomes more and more dysregulated and that can then ultimately or eventually lead to some of these more clinical conditions. And so, uh, we're all about like, even if you don't see yourself as having, you know, quote unquote, clinical mental health related symptoms or disorders, um, you most certainly have a manifestation of stress in your life. And so, this can be a great thing to help prevent your nervous system from unraveling and heading down a path that eventually could be more clinical one day.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. All right. I got one more question to ask you because sure. I can't not ask it because it's from my favorite podcaster, Tim Ferriss, and his book is right behind you Tools of Titans. That's right. And so, if you've ever listened to his podcast, you might know the question I'm about to ask. But anyways, um, Dr. J, if you're going to put up a billboard and millions of people are going to see that billboard, what would you put on it?
1: Yeah, I, I've thought about this and I have I have a couple of responses that go through my head every single time I think about this one. Um, mm. But I'm only going to I'm going to share like what I think is the one that I truly would would put on there. Um and the, and, and the billboard would just simply say you are loved. I think that so many people live life thinking that they are unlovable, that they're defective, uh, that they are uh, disposable. Um, and I would say that for me, um, even if you feel like you are not loved, um, I believe that you are. Uh, and it may mm-hmm. not be by yourself right now, It may not even be by others around you in your community, but I think collectively you're loved. And maybe it's by, you know, the universe or your maker or whoever, however you like to phrase it. I think that everybody is loved by somebody. And just knowing that you are loved is enough for me, at least, to motivate me to want to continue to be here and help others and be with others in community. So I like the billboard "You Are Loved."
0: When you first said that, um, I almost started to cry because I I own a and run a mental health nonprofit called "You Are Loved."
1: No, oh, didn't I did not know that.
0: Yeah, and I assumed you didn't uh, because just it felt so organic and real when you said it. Yeah, I started it um, in 2019. Cause in 2018, I lost my big sister, Rachel to, um uh, mm. to suicide. And so, mm. um, those three words, man, those three words like came to me, um, when I, when I really fucking needed them, <laughs> like really yeah. needed them. And yeah. it's some, sometimes it sounds cheesy, but to me, it's like, it's so true. It's like, uh, yeah. So I, uh, yeah. I, I don't really have any more words to say because yeah. you, you just dropped that on me. And so, um. <laughs> that's beautiful, man. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I honestly had had no idea and I'm very, very sorry for your loss and can only imagine what it was like to go through something like that. And I, I can't even imagine what it's like to go through that. Uh, but man, for that to be impressed upon your heart and your soul, um, yeah, I mean, that's the, those words, that's phenomenal.
0: It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's another reason for these, for these great conversations. Yeah, You know, so, well, Dr. J, I appreciate your time. Uh, I loved it. I loved every second of it. And uh, thank you for all the work you do and everything you put out into the universe.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much, Ian, for having me on.
0: Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Dr. J Wiles. There are four pillars of mental health. Which one will you start to focus on today to start improving your health and wellness? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share it with a friend. Because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is through Patreon. Patreon.com slash Aaron Mashbits directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit, You Are Loved. But most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.